This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My guest today, he's a mobile home park owner, operator, syndicator. He's got a fund. He's been in the industry for a long time. Please help me welcome Rhett Trees. Rhett, thanks for coming on the show, man. Oh, Ferd, I'm so excited to be here with you, man. I- I'm just so grateful that you spend all this time and energy to um, get the word out about mobile home park communities and, and really the good folks who are, are adding value to this sector. So uh, I'm thankful for your invitation. Well, I yeah, appreciate you coming on. appreciate the work you do. I think a lot of our audience probably knows who you are, but in case they don't, maybe give us a little more of your background, your, your history and how, you, how you've kind of started MHP and, and what, what you're working on today. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, I've always been passionate about um, affordable housing. I actually grew up on a fourth generation farm in in northern Indiana. My parents still live there. Um, So uh, affordable housing has always been something that has been a key driver for me in the real estate business. I've been incredibly blessed to have some great mentors along the way who have helped me um, and given me a hand up. I moved to Denver in 97. We started um, a hyperbolic real estate company. Um, in the early 2000s called Exclusive Resorts, which grew really quickly to about $1.4 billion in assets under management. Um, and we sold that to uh, Steve Case, the founder of AOL, and a couple different tranches. I was a, a leading sales executive there and, and had a blast. I actually met my wife there. Um, and then left Exclusive after the sale. It continued on um, and and actually left to, to start and, and take um, a pretty institutional view of this, the mobile self-storage world. So we, um, we bought 1-800-PACK-RAT from a firefighter in Raleigh-Durham. Oh. Uh, he had three locations at the time. There were five of us. Um, we turned that into about 70 locations in a couple years and sold it to Waste Management um, for just shy of $100 million, um, back the last day of 2009. And uh, to be honest with you, you know, I had what I call one of my spiritual revolutions where you know, I had fallen into a deep depression at that point. Um, I'd allowed my ego to kind of drive my self-worth um, and that I was allowing myself and my ego to tell me that I was worthy um, by what I did and not who I was. So I took about six months off and I, I spent a lot of time on that. And I came out with a, a new view on the world that, you know, my role every day is to touch someone's soul today. So I've really given a lot of my time and energy in my life to mentoring others and, and helping them come along, especially after I got into the mobile home park world in 2010, 2011, I bought into a private equity firm uh, called Caddis Capital. Uh, my partner, Terry LaRue, is kind of one of the godfathers of mobile home park investing. Um, he started the firm in 86. Uh, we had 12 mobile home park funds. Um, the fund that he and I owned last called Trico Fund 3, we sold to Blackstone. Uh, and Terry's in his 70s, uh, I'm 46. So um, I decided to just start Seneca, um, Seneca Capital Partners in March of 2017. 
you know, I had, had a, an opportunity to work with a lot of family offices and investors over the years as a syndicator and really wanted to start something that no one else had done to have an institutional platform to welcome family offices and, and small endowments and, and foundations who were struggling to get access to this, you know, unsophisticated sector of real estate. And so that's what we did. We launched Seneca as a registered investment advisor, which we're the only one that we know of uh, in the sector. KPMG has been our auditor from inception. So we think that's a huge differentiator for us. We've got an institutional fund manager, UMB Fund Services, who's been doing all of our reporting and investor relations since inception. So we think these things are key differentiators for us to kind of bring trust and, um, you know, this institutional type of a thesis um, to the sector. So we've been really excited about it. No, that, that's great stuff. So with your, with your current fund, what is the kind of footprint you guys look for? Are you looking for deals nationwide? Are you looking for stabilized, infill, value-add, combination? Just, I mean, obviously with the access to family offices and institutional money, um, I would imagine there's a plethora of investor uh, yield requirements and investor appetites that you have access to. But how do you, how do you go about you know, narrowing down the search or, or, or do you not even have to and you can have different almost divisions with different types of asset classes? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. We, we've launched three funds in just shy of four years. So um, our growth pattern has been, has been pretty incredible. And we've been really consistent through that entire period of what we call the, the winking smile states. So um, the smile starts up in um, Oregon, Washington, down through Idaho. We really like Idaho, um, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Texas. We dip below the Gulf states and go to Florida and then come up the Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina coast. And the wink is Wisconsin. We actually have a, about an 800 pad portfolio in Wisconsin that performed better than anything else um, during the COVID um, pandemic. And then the nose of the wink is, is Indiana. We, we own um, some assets in Indiana, which is where I'm from. Great. And then as far as, as far as type of assets, are they mostly stabilized or are you doing any development or redevelopment or expansion or infill? What's, what's the strategy there? <laughs> you know, I, I love that question for, because when, you know, a broker, a new broker will call you and say, you know, tell me what your box is. And, you know, I, you know my famous response is we don't have one. Um, if you ask my kids what I do for a living, they'll tell you that I'm a highly paid creative problem solver. Um, and really, if you can have that view of the mobile home park world, I think you're going to win. Um, you know, as you know, none of these assets are the same. I call them my children. You know, sometimes <laughs> you've got a problem child. Sometimes you've got, you know, uh, an A plus kid who's the straightest arrow you've ever met. So we've got all of the above. I mean, we, we own as small as 17 pads. And as high as nearly 400 um, okay. on single assets. So, you know, we love this pod thesis I've been talking about since 2011. I love that a lot of people have really, you know, started to use this in their marketing. Um, we think that there's a huge economies of scale and more operational efficiencies on the OPEX side and on the CAPEX side, um, to be honest with you, where um, we can really control our expenses um, at the asset level with this pod thesis. So with, you know, having five assets within 60 miles of each other in Wisconsin, we were able to significantly decrease the amount of humans required to run all those assets, um, both on the property management side and on the maintenance side. So we love to have these pods, you know, Dallas, Houston, Raleigh, Durham, um, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, Lakeland, Florida, Wisconsin, 
Indiana and Indianapolis. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how we think of the world. No, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I just, if you can get, I'm looking, I'm looking at a park this morning that's right down the street from another park. Home. So, you know what? I can pay more than you. I can pay more. I don't want to pay a premium, but I can afford to pay a little bit more premium because I have already have a manager right there. I already have maintenance right there. It's like, you know what? There's some economies of scale, even with just a second park in the same metropolitan area. But yeah, if you get three, four, five, ten, yeah, I'm sure it's, uh, I've never had more than three in a single market. But I can imagine if you get five or ten in a single market, it would just be, um, be excellent for those sort of efficiencies. Now, you've expanded, obviously, you've expanded other businesses, you've expanded this business. Uh, tell us a little bit about that scaling, that growth. I mean, I know that there's a choke point for a lot of people where you know, it's not easy, but it's easy to go from one to two, maybe two to three to four to five. But at a certain point, whether it's 500 pads or, or five parks, it starts to be like, okay, now I need help. Now I need staff. And if it's in a different geographic footprint, you may need you know lower level staff and medium or higher level staff. And, there, and there's definitely a, a risk component of that from an appetite of hiring personnel. There's a, a risk component to trusting other people to do stuff that you've been doing. Um, tell us what you've learned through that process. Maybe our listeners can uh, you know, follow in your footsteps on to, to grow the portfolio. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I just hosted um, a bunch of operators out in Denver um, for a dinner, Andrew Keel and Jeffrey Cook. And I know most of those guys have been on um, the program. And we have this conversation a lot, right? Because we're all just trying to figure it out. And it's, it's amazing and interesting how different we all look at the same industry. Um, so for us, you know, the scale part was very important. We, we think scale in this business is likely the biggest differentiator you can have. So there's this void in my mind in, this, in the sector between, you know, the, the, the cobble together guys, you know, which there's nothing wrong with. It's a lot of work. Um, and the institutional, you know, kind of, the three publicly traded and then some of the sovereign private wealth firms who really want to participate, but can't get enough scale. So we've been very vocal about launching five funds in five years and selling them simultaneously, um, you know, here in the 2024 to 2028 range has, has really been our goal from day one. So my belief is, is that if you know where you're going, then the road becomes shorter, right? Um, it, we're, we're trying to pull the future forward is really all we're doing. We do believe that it's a roll-up opportunity of a lifetime for us to, to really have a land grab and to find those assets that fit our really small niche. And so that's what we do is, you know, if we get a 34 pad park in Jabip anywhere, um, it's really a quick, quick no for us because time is our enemy. There's only four of us um, at our kind of corporate um, headquarters. So you know, that is something that we've been really good about being disciplined with every asset that we see. We've looked at 258 deals, I think something like that, about $3 billion worth of deals since 2017. And I think we've purchased 15 of them maybe. So, you know, the discipline of that purchase path is something that is helpful for us because it saves us time. Certainly. So, and I think the rolling up or the eventual consolidation of the industry, which I think has already begun is where people are really going to make money and you're going to get that multiple. What's your opinion on the, the size of the portfolio you need, whether geographically or in total, to make that, make that real for you? Is, is it, can an individual get there at five? Is it 10? Has it got to be 50? And, you know, and was it, I mean, how much of this number of parks, dollar value pads, 
what, are, what is your view of that? And I'm also interested in your, your view of where we are in that cycle. You know, are we are we at the maturity stage? Are we are we, are we still ramping up? I mean, you know, as an as an asset class. Yeah, it's a fascinating view. You know, I, I think when I started in 2011 or so, there were about 50,000 pads, uh, 50,000 um, parks, and I think there's probably only about 38,000 left today um, because of consolidation and and multifamily redevelopment mainly. Um, so, you know, if you look at it that way, and we think there's about 30,000 people who own just a mobile home park. So with our, our first two funds, we couldn't really take advantage of those, what I call perfected portfolios. So a mom and pop owner that owns between three and five parks, because our geographic, um, uh, exposure would have been way too high. That's what I'm excited about with our third fund. I think because it's so much bigger, we can really focus on those three to five park pad portfolios um, where, where we can go in and add a significant amount of value. A lot of those mom and pops in my experience that have three to five have kind of gotten over their skis a little bit um, regarding their personal balance sheet. So they may not have the ability or proclivity to add new homes. We have a significant um, storage of road ready 2017 to 2020 mobile homes that we move into our parks immediately upon acquisition which really has been a huge differentiator for us to be able to, to add that much supply. Um, you know, that's something that gives me so much joy when I wake up every morning is that I get to add housing stock to the lowest common denominator, what we call workforce housing, right? Where we can provide a home to a person for $40,000, $50,000 and take them out of the traditional path to home ownership and provide, you know, financing opportunities or otherwise to get them into that home. And that's really what brings me so much joy about what we're particularly doing. We're not just buying something and sitting on it, if you will. When we have a rent increase, we do something for the tenant. Um, we repave the roads, we add mo- um, playgrounds, basketball courts, et cetera. So that's um, you know, a big part of what we do. No, I think that I think that's great. I mean, I think that's I agree. It's one of the better things in the industry is to watch people. You know, I've had I've said before on the show, I've had several people come up and hug me, crying. I can't believe I got approved. I can't believe I can get a house this nice. And then, yeah, I think it's just strategic anyway. If you're going to put a rent increase in to add value, uh, we like to when we buy a park. You know, we're probably going to increase the rent. We don't increase the rent the first day. We we increase it like 45 days later. And we pump a ton of money into the park for the first 45 days. Like, look, we just repaid the streets. We just put in rose bushes. We just put in a playground. We trimmed all the dead trees. We demoed five houses. Isn't your neighborhood better? Absolutely, it's better. Do you mind paying $30 extra? It's, it's a value, right? And I joke, you know, there's some things you, you don't mind paying extra. I don't, I don't buy cheap toilet paper, trash bags, or razor blades, right? I'll pay for the better ones because it's worth the value. It's worth the quality. So that's, that's what we try to do is, you know, increase the, increase the quality for the dollar instead of just squeeze dollars. And I think as an industry, that makes sense. So, you know, our reputation has been up and down, mostly down for the last number of decades. And for the most part, I think it's going up on a regular basis uh, with perhaps a few exceptions. But uh, I think just globally, macroeconomically, asset class, it makes good economic sense and just good moral sense, you know, reward, you know, give, give something back when you're going to not just take the extra revenue. Yeah, I agree. I always say that, you know, I'm a pretty spiritual cat. So, you know, we don't want to take advantage of our tenants. They're actually, 
know, when you buy something, people forget that the cap rate is really the future value of the in-place leases that you're buying, right? So the last thing you'd want to do is to buy something and then for all those people to leave because then your value just left with it. So, you know, we really think of our tenants as, as a partner in everything that we do, which has been kind of a rule incredibly rewarding for us, but a big differentiator for us too, that we, we want them to stay there. And our occupancy levels during COVID were the highest that they've ever been. Um, and, and we did still have rent increases, but we were also providing tons of CapEx. Um, and to your earlier point, you know, we're, we're doing a 25 pad development in Wisconsin right now um, that was kind of already pre-done by the previous owner. And we're just really attaching the undergrounds to the trunk that's already in the back of the park and putting 25 brand new homes in. We're doing that in Coeur d'Alene also, where we're adding new homes, double wides, Indianapolis, we're doing that. So, um, you know, we love these kind of small development solutions where we can add additional home and housing stock, fill the, fill the unoccupied pads with, with newer homes, like 2017 to 2021 homes. Right. Earlier, we were talking about scale. Tell us how you uh, have been able to scale with only four people back at headquarters. Yeah. You know, uh, a big differentiator for us for it has been that we've got M. Shapiro as our dedicated third-party property manager. The blessing uh, in my life was when I was at Caddis, we tried to do both, right? We, we had this thesis that we would try to do, um, have an internal team that was a property management arm of Caddis. And then we had a third party that also did work for us. And in my experience, um, what we found was that our internal team was twice as costly and half as productive. So when we started Seneca, I really wanted to find um, a third-party property management partner we could be dedicated with. We originally started with Newport Pacific. Um, we've worked with Newbie. We've worked with Sunstone. Um, and we just, for us, found the ideal solution in M. Shapiro. They committed to doing everything with us nationwide, to, to investing in um, assets and people um, in all those locations in order for us to execute our pod thesis. And with them, we have been incredibly successful based on their internal resources, which I think are best in breed and world-class. And we're really grateful to Mickey Shapiro for adding us as one of the handful of third-party operators that they work with. I think they own 18,000 pads um, in their own book. So um, they know what they're doing. They are very elegant at what they do on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And Mark Kassab and his team there um, have just, you know, overachieved for us. Excellent. Yeah. I don't hear many people do third-party management. That's great. Cause it's, it's, it's a definitely a hard business to manage. I, I, I generally tell people, I don't think it's a real estate business. I think it's an operations business. Um, you know, I've done other real estate business and this, this is definitely management intensive, management heavy. So if you don't have it in house, you got to definitely have a high quality, team that outsource it to. So it sounds like it's working out well for you. That's great. Yeah. You know, I often say that property management is the most important and the least rewarding aspect of our business. So, um, you know, that's been a big, a big changer for us. You know, when I started Seneca, I really wanted to have this dedicated team of humans that I worked with on a daily basis. And for us to go out and find the, find these best in breed service providers like you, um, you know, on the lawyer side where, we can really expedite our growth and scale quickly utilizing these, you know, non-W2 resources where we can just add humans where needed or required in the fund administration, 
um, has been huge for that with UMB Fund Services. And we've got a dedicated contact there that we work with on a daily basis who's a CPA. And um, that's been a big rewarding experience for us too. No, that's great. Make, makes sense. That's definitely something you guys can distinguish yourselves from the crowd is having all these you know, professional third party, not just third party, like you know, the tree guy, the road guy, the landscaping guy. No, these are third party key, you know, some degree C-suite um, or VP level personnel that are available on a contract basis. So um, glad that's working out. That's definitely a strategy you've been able to do. What other strategies or tips do you have for our audience that was key to your success before, before we were? Or maybe uh, if you have any horror stories you want to share or lessons learned, uh, maybe share those with our audience as well. Yeah, you know, we, um, we've been really successful on the acquisitions front. We've got nine bird dogs that work for us. Um, you know, that's been a huge part of our business. Um, we went to some of the brokers in the community and just said, hey, you know, the typical buy side period can be a year long, right? By the time you get an owner who really wants to sell, you do all of your OM work, your financials, you get it to the market, you accept, you know, and you go through your grid of, of potential buyers, go through a long, uh, you know, due diligence and closing period, 105, 120 days. By the time you get done, you know, you you get to the point where you're finally done and you took your eye off the ball with other assets or other opportunities and you gave half of it to the shop. So we went to a bunch of these guys and just said, what if you just made an introduction to us and we took everything? Well, our shop is a little bit unique in the fact that we're, we're not a trust and verify shop, but we're a self verification shop. So regardless of who presents what to us, we go back to the beginning and we start our entire due diligence process from scratch regardless. So um, it really helps to have these bird dogs because then they can just make a quick introduction. They have the relationship. We can, um, you know, present ourselves to the ownership that the bird dog's going to go through the process with us. We have this kind of interweaved um, alliance with the bird dog and then take down deals. And we've been, um, we've been having a ton of fun with that. No, that's great. I'm, I'm with you. I, I jokingly say, you know, President Reagan's one that said trust, but verify. I say don't trust and verify. So it sounds like the same process. And I know I worked in I worked in government, and then I'm a lawyer and a broker, so I've been around liars for a long time. So I just don't trust other people very easy. Um, yeah, well, well, I mean, as you've probably run into, you know, a couple of the deals. I think the last five, if not six, deals we've bought, um, the sellers have been in their 80s, which has been pretty fascinating. We're working with their owners who are in their 60s, and we've got a deal we're working on right now that's maybe one of our best deals and maybe one of our best markets. And the owner doesn't have a computer. Um, he's been taking rent rolls by hand for the last 25 years. So he's got a shoebox, the classic, you know, we've all heard yeah. it. But, you know, we, we've gotten around that. We just bought a deal near a 400 pad deal where yeah. you know, we just we just had our analysts go out and, and really hunker down and try and run through all the docs on site. Our COO, Paul Luber, has been incredible about that, too. We'll just take, then we'll take the box to the FedEx Kinko's and, you know, hammer through it. And then we'll try and incorporate it up into, um, you know, an Excel spreadsheet or some other sophisticated tool that we can use and, and then present it to Freddie Mac. We do every deal with Freddie Mac. It's been an incredible part of our success too, is, is the support from Freddie. And so you can imagine when you present some of these, you know, what I think of as value add deals to Freddie, they go, Really? And how we've gotten around that, which is really a differentiator for us too, is that you know we when we closed on our 
portfolio in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we escrowed a million dollars of equity for that deal um, in our promise to do what we said we would with Freddie. Um, You know, our deal that we bought in Lakeland, Florida, we escrowed 666,000 at closing to go redo 168 parking pads that we did within about six months, eight, eight panel, six panel um, cement parking pads. So the investment of and in that relationship um, has been a big deal for us because our rates are just incredibly low. I mean, to put oh, yeah. debt at less than 300 BIPs um, on a 10 year term, 30 year AM with three supplementals and in the, the assumptive clause, has been a big deal in regards to our disposition strategy, because if we're going to hold all the assets clear through a a final period, we want to have a return of and a return on to our investors. So we're we're utilizing the supplemental tool, a cash out refinance as a way to give back to our investors, a a return of capital um, during the whole period. So um, that's been um, a, a great deal for, for us over the years. Now, that sounds great. I'm curious when you mentioned earlier, you'll take on even an 18 pad park. How does that fit in the Freddie Mac guidelines as a part of the portfolio? Because that seems too low. It's below the minimums. Uh, I'm just curious on that. Or is that a, is that a side deal where you that one you buy cash, cash lower line of credit or something? We bought that deal in cash. It was, uh, you know, not a lot of money. Um, and so we just bought that in cash. Freddie did all the other deals. Um, that was actually an interesting um, transaction. Um, and so, um, you know, we only have two deals that we have not done Freddie Mac debt with one, uh, is a park we own in Houston, 66 pads, um, that we did with uh, a local community bank, low LTV, 50 LTV. Our aspiration was to go add a ton of value to that park and then take it to Freddie Mac. We're actually going to list it for sale, um, in the next 30 days. Um, into your earlier question too about private utilities, it's the only asset that we own that has um, well and septic. And in our experience, that's just not the ideal solution for us. Um, you know, with Texas Environmental Quality, we've been trying to get some previous items that the previous owner um, had that was attached to the private utilities, where we've been we've cleaned them up, we've done all of that investment in that infrastructure. And, and have now gotten it to a point where, you know, we know that it's, it's, a, it's an asset that we can be proud of. We re, we've repaved and re, put in cement curb and gutter, um, repaved all the roads, uh, all new electrical. So it's like a brand new park um, with well and septic um, that have been updated. But our preference is to own city water, city sewer everywhere. We think there's about a 75 to 100 basis point free lift in in private utility and public utilities, sorry. No, I would, I would agree. Yeah, I usually, I usually price them about 50 bips for the, the sewer, 50 for the water, maybe more, a little more if it's a lagoon sewer. Um, you know, give it a credit in the other direction if you got city taking care of the roads. I had a couple where the city takes care of the roads and plows those and paves them and everything. So that's not a big deal but compared to utility system, but it's, it's huge. It's still, it's still relatively a big deal, so. Anyway, great stuff, Brett. Um, for uh, anything else, so otherwise, let us know where we can find you. Yeah, no, appreciate that. Well, one one other quick thing, you know, to our earlier conversation about the creativity, right? We've got a park um, that we're buying right now that's a really large park that's on a lagoon system, 
but it's about 150 feet from the city trunk. So exactly. we're going about, um, you know, bringing that community um, onto the city services and we're going to decommission um, that lagoon um, ourselves. So that's kind of where I think the creativity and the rubber hits the road and, and what's left in our world. I mean, the amount of assets that are left, I think we're all going to have to have a little bit of risk for that reward um, on some of these deals, but. No, it makes, it makes sense. I look at, I've looked at Lagoon Park. I've owned a Lagoon, but I don't, I don't own it currently, but I've probably looked at three or four closely in the last year. And that's always, that's always a key point is how close to the city services. And, and on one of those, it's seemingly close, but it had to go underneath an interstate. And I got an engineering bid and it was, I don't know, 350,000. And I needed it to be a hundred or something. It seemed, right. it seemed like it might've been under a hundred, but it, I was wrong. And <laughs> it was a lot more. And I was like, nope, I'm not, I'm not taking that risk. It was in Illinois too, which is a little less friendly from a regulatory standpoint in general. I was like, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to roll the $400,000 dice on this one. So, but anyway, great stuff, Brett. Tell us where we can reach out to you after this episode. I uh, appreciate that, Ferd. Yeah. Um, you can check us out at SenecaCP.com online. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, um, just under my name, Rhett, R-H-E-T-T, Trees, T-R-E-E-S. I'd encourage anyone, I mentor a ton of up-and-comers in the space. Um, I'm on the board at the Kelly School of Business, which is my alumni at Indiana University. So I mentor a ton of students there, and, and I'm happy to you know, spend some time with some folks who want to learn more about the industry. We love to educate um, folks about what we do and why, more importantly, the why of what we do. Um, and so um, they can reach me on email, rtrees, T-R-E-E-S, at Seneca, S-E-N-E-C-A-C-P.com. And um, my cell phone, which is the only phone I have, is 303-888-2826. All right. Thanks again, Rhett. Appreciate it. My pleasure for, take care. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.